as we were just talking about, evil is ever-present, and it is a question that we've been struggling with for a long time, if God, why evil? Even the movie Noah talked about that more recently. And we're excited to have Sean here this morning to talk a little bit about it with us. Uh, Sean is a graduate of Talbot Seminary and Biola. He's also finishing up his PhD at Southern. He's written about 10 books, co-authored some with his dad because his dad was running out of ideas after 100, Josh. Uh, And so we're just excited that he's here with us. Um, Sean is teaching at Biola now uh, in the apologetics program. He's also helps out at the Bible Department of Capistrano Valley Christian School. And more than that, he's just a great guy who has an awesome family. He married his high school sweetheart, Stephanie. They have three kids, and they come over every week for dinner, for family dinner, because I married his sister. So I'm excited to have Sean here, and just please join me in welcoming Sean to the stage. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Well, thanks for that kind introduction. It's a treat and honor for me to be a part of your series on blockbuster questions. Because let's face it, people have questions, right? Christians, non-Christians, as human beings, we ask questions. And fortunately, Michael gave me the easy topic, if God, why evil? Now, I say that in jest, because obviously this is really the perennial question, isn't it? I think every single one of us in here at some point have suffered, we've seen evil, and we've kind of pounded our chest and we've looked up and we've said, God, why does this happen? God, where are you? Why would you allow evil if you were good? In fact, it's this question that has kept some of the greatest thinkers of all time from becoming Christians insofar as we know. So Albert Einstein, he said it was his science that drove him towards God in the sense he said that God does not play dice with the universe. There must be design, but he couldn't believe in God personally because of evil. Charles Darwin, it wasn't his evolutionary theory that drove him to have deep questions into his agnosticism. It was the premature death of his daughter. And one of the great textual critics of our day who went to Wheaton College and Moody, but now would consider himself an agnostic, Bart Ehrman, actually said that the reason he became a non-believer is this. He said, I left the faith for what I took to be and still take to be an unrelated reason, the problem of suffering in the world. I mean, just turn on the news and it's well aware we live in a broken, messed up world. But this isn't a question that only non-believers ask. This is a question that believers in God ask. All of us ask this. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk said, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out violence, but you do not save? See, the difficulty in asking this question, you're not going to walk out of here 30 minutes later and go, Oh, I got that one solved up, chalk it up, and move on to the next question. That's not how the problem of evil works. Because there's things that happen, we don't know why they happen that way. There's things we won't know until the other side When the story's done, why God allowed it to happen. We know the beginning, we know how it ends, but we're in the middle and and we have questions. And the real question is, are we going to trust God? But the reality is, the question of evil is not just an intellectual question, like solving a geometrical theorem. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. 
fact, when I graduated from uh, Biola University, I spent uh, a year traveling with my dad, just being an assistant for him, traveling all over the place. And my senior year, at the very end, I took a class on apologetics, defending the faith with the great J.P. Moreland. And I was just, I aced the class. I was ready for anybody to ask me a question, and I was going to shoot it down and show that Christianity has to be true. So we're traveling in Breckenridge, Colorado. You've been to the beautiful ski town of Breckenridge? And I'm going in to get my hair cut. And this lady, probably in her mid-20s, invites me to, to sit down. And I'm holding this book, and she looks at it, and she goes, Oh, is that a Christian book? I said, Yes. She said, Well, are you Christian? I said, I am. And she, asked, she said, Can I ask you a question? I said, Sure. And she says, Well, if God is so good and powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? And to my shame to show my naivete, my first thought was, that's all you got? This is easy. That's actually what I'm thinking. And I said, well, just think about it for a second. You can't have evil without good. You can't have good without God. So the fact that you're asking about the problem of evil assumes that God must exist. I said, besides, it's not God who does evil. It's humans. God wanted to give us free will. He didn't want to make us robots. She asked a question and I shot it down. I mean, I'm sitting in my mind thinking, I am making some progress. I am killing it. Until all of a sudden... She steps back and she starts to cry. And she says, this is a bunch of expletive. I'll let your imagination fill in the blank. She says, you have an answer for everything. It can't be that easy. And she's sitting there crying, which made me nervous because she's holding scissors to my head while she's cutting my hair. And obviously, as a typical male, just clueless to a female's emotions, although I've come a long ways... I remember we left and my buddy Jason was there and we walked out. I'm like, man, what is it with her? We're having a great conversation. I'm trying to help her make sense of evil. And he stopped. He said, do you have any idea how insensitive and arrogant you were to her? And it just hit me. I thought, he's right. You see, I've spent too much time in my life answering questions that people aren't even asking (laughs) So whenever somebody asks me, in particular a young person, why does God allow evil and suffering? If I can't, I always ask a question back. I'll simply say, of all the questions you can ask about God, why that one? You know what you'll typically hear? Well, my parents just got separated. My uncle died of cancer. I've been bullied at school. I was abused as a kid. On and on and on. See, because when we talk about this question of the problem of evil, it's important that we put it in the right context. Because in one sense, there's the emotional issue that's tied to evil and suffering. We've experienced evil. We've felt pain. We've felt guilt from the evil that we've done to other people. And how we deal with the emotional problem of evil is very different than how we intellectually answer it. You see, Job's friends tried to come and comfort Job because Job went through some serious suffering, didn't he? He lost his family, his reputation, his job, his home. He was scraping himself with because he had boils over his body. And his friends show up and they do everything right. His friends show up to Job and they do everything right until they open up their mouths. And then they ruin it, didn't they? You know, they sat there for a week with Job and mourned with him. That's how we should respond when people suffer. You see, Romans 12 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Sometimes we're with people suffering and we don't know what to say. And sometimes the best thing is just not to say anything. To just pray with the person, listen to the person, be with the person. So we're going to look at why God allows evil and try to make sense of it from a Christian perspective. But it's important as we look at this that we remember, people don't ask this question in the abstract, do they? I obviously don't know all of you here, although I've seen some friends from Biola, which is fantastic. I know there's some hurt in here. And as we look at this question this morning, it might surface some hurts in your own life. And the Christian response is to listen and to show empathy and to love and care for somebody. And then when it's right, help that person understand that it's only Christianity that offers the most intellectually and emotionally satisfying response to the problem of evil. And it's important before we jump in to realize that this question, why evil, is not a question that only Christians have to answer. Muslims have to answer it. Buddhists have to answer it. Atheists have to make sense of it. The question is, which belief system makes the best sense of why we have such an evil and broken world we find ourselves in? So let's take a look at what we're going to call the philosophical problem of evil. So we can have a ready answer for those who ask us. Well, my dad taught me a lot of things. And one thing he told me is, he'd say, son, if you can define a problem, you're halfway towards solving it. So he's taught me to define my words like love, words like truth. When I started thinking about this question, I started asking, what is evil? I wonder how many of you in here could actually define evil. Because typically when we're in conversation, I think most people have a mistaken understanding of what evil actually is. It was C.S. Lewis who was an atheist for years before he became a Christian. He was one of the great literary minds of the 20th century at Oxford, but he was an atheist. And do you know one of the main reasons he was an atheist? It was because of the problem of evil. But what started to change his mind is when he was able to define and understand what evil is. In his book, Mere Christianity, how many of you have read Mere Christianity? Okay, everybody without their hands up, look at him and give him a scowl for not... Okay, I'm just kidding. That is a must read. He says something here. He says this. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see what he's saying? We define crookedness in comparison to a standard of straight. We define injustice compared to a standard of justice. And similarly, we define evil in light of the standard of good. So just like you can't have a crooked stick without a standard of straight, you can't have something evil unless there's first a standard of good. You see, evil is parasitic upon good. Now, for a parasite to exist, what does it have to have? This is the participatory part of the program. Okay, good. It has to have a host, right? So the parasite can't exist unless there's something, a host, that it's relying upon. The, ho- the host is good, evil's the parasite. So think about it this way. Take a lie and take truth. Some people think, well, like yin and yang, there's kind of good and evil are these equal opposite forces. But that's not the case. 
So take a lie. Which one is more basic, a lie or truth? Truth is, right? You can have truth without somebody telling a lie. But you can't tell a lie unless there's first a standard of truth to be twisted. So a lie assumes the existence of something that is true. So a lie is parasitic upon truth. So here's another way to think about it. Take a good wrench that works. All right? It's a pure wrench. If it goes bad, what happens? You get rust. Well, you can't have rust in the abstract unless you first have a pure metal to become rusty. Rust is parasitic upon, upon metal. Take healthy teeth, for example. And I know what you're thinking. What picture is he going to show up there next? Let me just spare you something. Don't ever, ever Google tooth decay. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I took one for the team. So I was like, I need a picture of tooth decay. I was like, oh man, I can't believe I Googled that. What was I thinking? So this one is somewhat mild, not too bad. Now think about that for a second. You can only have tooth decay and get unhealthy if you first have what? Good teeth or healthy teeth. You see how this works? There's a host and something that's parasitic upon the host. Well, that's what good and evil is like. You can have good without evil, but you can't have evil unless you have good. So evil, in a sense, is a corruption of that which is good. So ironically, when someone raises the problem of evil, they're assuming that evil is real, like Shannon mentioned. And if evil's real, there must be a standard of good to be corrupted. And if there's a real standard of good, there must, in fact, be a God to ground it. A friend of mine, Frank Turek, was debating the late, well-known atheist, you maybe have heard of Christopher Hitchens, who died a year or two ago. Christopher Hitchens was from Britain, had long flowing hair. He had kind of the cool factor of being an atheist. And he wrote a book called, God is Not Great. And the whole argument of his book was that religion is immoral, religion poisons and ruins everything. So he spent this debate attacking religion for being immoral. And Frank Turk got it there, he said, Christopher, you're attacking Christianity for being immoral. That assumes that there's a standard of morality that Christianity's broken. But on atheism, there is no objective standard of morality. So you're actually borrowing my objective standard of morality to turn around and critique my religion. He said, Christopher, you sit on God's lap to slap him in the face. Now that's a good line. He's from Jersey, so he can get away with it. But when we just define evil, it doesn't tell us why God allows it, but we begin to place it in a context and realize, oh my goodness, this only really makes sense if in fact there is a God and then we have questions about why God lets the world go as he lets it go. So Sam Harris, another well-known atheist, defined the problem of evil, I think, very well. He said this. He said, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities or he does not care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. There is another possibility, of course, and it is both the most reasonable and the least odious. The biblical God is a fiction, like Zeus and the thousands of other dead gods whom most sane beings now ignore. 
So here's what it would look like if we laid it out. If God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. How many of you believe God is all-powerful? Let me see your hands. Okay, so you have to agree with that premise. Number two, if God is good, he would want to stop evil. How many of you believe God is good? Well, third, evil exists. How many of you believe evil exists? So fourth, therefore, this all-powerful, all-good God does not exist. Now, to show that that conclusion doesn't follow, you have to challenge one of those first three premises, right? Do you know what Eastern religions do? Hinduism, Buddhism, they deny premise three. They say, yeah, evil isn't real. It doesn't exist. It's illusion. There's not really such a thing as right and wrong and good and evil. I don't know about you, but that is far from being a satisfying answer to the evil and suffering I see in the world. That it's an illusion It's not real. So let's look at these one by one. If God is all powerful, he can stop evil. So I'm curious, how many of you believe God can do anything? Let me see your hands. Really? You think God can do anything? Everything. God can do everything. So what about Hebrews 6.18 that says God cannot lie? You can lie, but God can't. Does that mean you're more powerful than God? How many of you think God can lie? Okay. Muslims do. They believe God can do whatever he wants to. How, what about James 1.13? God cannot be tempted by sin. He can't be. But you can be tempted. Does that mean you're more powerful than God? See, this is the perennial question people have been asking. Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Or as Bart Simpson would say, can God make a burrito so big he can't eat it? (laughs) So if you say, yes, God can do that, he's limited because he can't eat it. If you say, no, God can't do it, then he's still limited because he can't do it. So I actually have an offer. I brought a paper clip, and I'd like to give away... You guys are giving away free movie tickets. I'm giving away a million dollars. If anybody can take this paper clip and bend it into a square circle. That's it. I mean, it'll take you three seconds. I'll give you a million dollars. I don't see any of you running down the aisles. Number one, you're thinking, wait a minute, you're a professor. (laughs) All right, he wants to give it a shot. You can have a seat. You can work on that as long as you want to. Now, it could be that most of you didn't come down because you're thinking this is impossible or your thought is, wait a minute, you're a professor, you don't have a million dollars. So I'm not quite sure which one it is that you are asking. You let us know when you're done. How many says, I'm confident he's going to get it? Yeah, it's not going to happen. In fact, if you raise your hand, I have something to sell you after this. You know it can't be done. Because a square circle in itself is logically impossible. It can't happen. So are we limiting God by saying God can't make a square circle? No. In fact, what if we brought our old governator in here? We brought Arnold Schwarzenegger up here and said, all right, you're pretty strong. Could he make a square circle? No. It doesn't matter how much power somebody has. A square circle cannot exist. It's impossible. Even God 
could not make a square circle. That's not a limitation on God. That's a recognition that such a thing is impossible. So when we say that God is all-powerful, what theologians have classically meant is that God can do everything consistent with his moral nature that is logically possible. So God can't lie. That's not a weakness in God. God can't lie because God is perfect. Lying is an imperfection of being human. But because God is perfect, he can't lie. So what's the point? If God is all-powerful, could he stop evil? Absolutely. And someday he will. But can God make a world with beings who are genuinely free and then determine that we always choose what is right? Even God can't do that. Because such a thing is impossible. It was Alvin Plantinga, one of the greatest living philosophers. He said, a world containing creatures who are significantly free is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Now, God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to only do what is right. For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free. After all. To create creatures capable of moral good, oops, to create creatures capable of moral good, he must create creatures capable of moral evil. He can't give these creatures freedom and then determine that they use it in a preset way. So when we look at our first premise, if God is all powerful, we can create a world without, with, he can get rid of evil. Yes, that's true. But even God can't create a world with genuinely free beings. And determine that we always do what is right. Any more than he can create a square circle. What about our second question? If God is all good, he would want to stop evil. If God is all good, he would want to stop evil. So here's the question. Can there be any reason why that because God is good, he might allow evil to exist for a season? He might allow people to suffer for a season actually because he's good. Now, if you think the Christian life is about having 2.2 kids and about making a certain amount of money and being happy, then this is going to make no sense to you. But if you think Christianity, above all else, is knowing God and being shaped to a certain character for eternity, then maybe this point will start to make sense. I got a call from a friend of mine Someone I had talked to about the existence of God for about 10 years, just occasionally when it was appropriate, and no interest at all. And this guy is brilliant from a leading university, got a double, double degree, just brilliant. And he calls me up on the phone, and, and I said, hey, what's going on? He goes, I got a question for you. You teach your students how to answer tough questions, right? I said, yes. He said, well, how do you know God exists and Christianity is true? I about fainted. <laughs> Because I had been talking to him for 10 years about God, no interest at all, now he's calling me. I said, well, I'm happy to help you, but why are you calling me? And he had told me that a good friend of his, about 15 years old, had a brain tumor. And he said, quote, it shook me up to my own mortality. Here's a guy running through life, success, everything in the eyes of the world, and it took that to get him to stop and just think about eternal questions 
fact, C.S. Lewis said, he said, God whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Francis Collins is one of the great scientists of our day. President Clinton um, assigned him to help lead the human genome mapping that happened a few years ago. Brilliant. He was an atheist. He did not believe in God at all. And what started to change his belief system, he was in medical school, he was in residency, and he was in hospice, basically caring for people who were dying. And he saw people responding in all different ways to death. But he kept coming across these Christians. Yes, they were suffering. Yes, it was painful and hurtful. He said, but they had a peace about life. They had a hope. They had a faith. And the great scientist of that day, it caught his attention. He went and he read C.S. Lewis's book and ended up believing in Christ and becoming a believer. Maybe those people who suffered never even knew that. But God can use suffering and the pain and even the seemingly evil things in this world that are meant for evil. God can take them and he can use them for good. Pastor Timothy Keller said, if you have a God great enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. So how could God be good and allow suffering? Take a look at this video by a baseball player, former baseball player. I think many of you will recognize. I had the wonderful experience of seeing a boyhood dream become a reality. Um, I wanted to be a major league pitcher and uh, I found myself um, pitching for the San Diego Padres. I'll never forget June 8th of 1982 when I got called up from the minor leagues and I was now in the big leagues and, and living this dream. Um, for the next five years I was in the um, San Diego Padres organization and then got traded over to San Francisco and, and, and in many respects a new lease on life with the Giants. And I'll never forget opening day 1988 pitching against the Dodgers. We win 5-1 to one, and I'm on my way to what I thought was going to be a 20-win season. And all of a sudden, a small lump develops in my left arm. Being a left-handed pitcher, not a good thing. And by September of that year, the doctors were telling me that that lump was cancer. And so my world came crumbling down. And um, the doctors looked at me and said, outside of a miracle, you'll never pitch again. Well, for the next 10 months, I went through rehab. And, and uh, I had to try because I didn't want to live with that question looming over my head. If I never tried, then could I have come back to play again? So off I embarked on this journey to come back. And August 10th, 1989, I'm standing on the mound again I'm in Candlestick Park for the San Francisco Giants, getting ready to pitch against the Cincinnati Reds. And it's the miracle of the comeback. Uh, we win that game 4-3. to three. I'm back in the saddle. Everything's going great. Five days later, we're in Montreal pitching against the Expos. It's the sixth inning. I rear back, and I throw a fastball to Tim Raines. My left arm snaps in half. Um, from there, obviously, the cancer reoccurs. I, I retire from baseball, and uh, I go through the next battle in this journey through pain and suffering. And the cancer, along with radiation treatments, a staph infection, all of that culminating with June 18, 1991, having the left arm and shoulder amputated to save my life. And in the midst of that, there were a number of questions that were looming around this issue of pain and suffering. And I'll never forget going on Barbara Walters 
and on 2020, and she had actually point blank asked me, why did God make you suffer? That's an amazing question. Amazing question. And to be honest with you, I didn't know how to answer it at the time. Why did God make me suffer? Did God make me suffer? But in the end, this whole idea of suffering is so much bigger than what I think we can discover here on this earth. So much bigger. And we really can't see everything that God's doing, but I do know one thing, I can trust God in the midst of it. And the bottom line is, is that through this journey, there was always hope because of what Christ did for me on the cross. There was always hope. Now, in the midst of the pain and the suffering, there were days that were so hard. Um, I experienced clinical depression. I had fear. I had doubt. I had worry. And, and at the end of all of that, there were choices that I had to make. And there were two choices in particular. I could either look at this experience and walk away from God, or I could move directly towards the heart of God and trusting him to provide the strength I would need to get to the other side of this. And that's what I chose. I chose the path of hope. I chose the path of encouragement and comfort and strength that comes through knowing God through his son, Jesus Christ. And with that hope, um, you know, I'm here today and I can say that cancer has been a blessing in my life. Those are powerful words. <laughs> cancer has been a blessing in my life. Maybe you're there in your life and you see that. Maybe you're sitting in your life thinking, I've seen cancer, experienced it, and that's the furthest thing from my mind to describe it as a blessing. And to me, that kind of brings us to the unique question of how does Christianity, separate from all other belief systems, uniquely deal with the pain and suffering we've experienced and this broken world that has been affected by evil? Because so far we've seen, if God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. He will someday. But even God can't create a world in which we're free, but then we're forced to do what is good. Second, if God is all good, he'd want to stop evil. Well, there is something good about just relationships and human beings. And we see in the life of Dravecki and others that God actually uses pain. And he uses evil sometimes, amazingly, and can turn and get good out of it. But the question is, what does Christianity uniquely offer when we think about pain and suffering? Well, in the 1800s, there's a man by the name of Father Damien. Father Damien, he, he was a priest. And he was surprised to learn that there was an entire leper colony in the island, on the last island, I think towards the end of Hawaii, called Molokai. And there were a bunch of lepers. And he couldn't just imagine that they were being allowed to live, to die, and nobody was ministering to them. So completely by his own choice, he went to be a pastor for this leper colony. He treated their wounds. He fed them. He preached to them. He prayed with them. He built caskets. And he buried many of them. For years, he was caring for this colony. And then one morning, he stand up and he gave a message to him that changed everything. Father Damien stood before this small colony of lepers. And he opened up his shirt and he said, we lepers. And he showed the first signs of leprosy. Do you think they loved and appreciated him before he got a leper? Became, before he got leprosy? Of course but something changed that day when he got leprosy, didn't he? All of a sudden, they understood the cost that he paid 
the price to him and how far he was willing to go to care for those people. He lived the rest of his life with them and he died as a leper caring for that calling. Here's a question. Is Jesus, was Jesus and still is more like Father Damien before he got leprosy or after? It's after, isn't it? It's only in Christianity. Of all the religion belief systems of the world, it's only Christianity that can say, our God understands when we go through pain. He understands our suffering. He did not just send a prophet. He did not just send a book or an angel. He sent his son to experience suffering, the full weight of evil, so he could understand and bring redemption. In fact, if you just look at the great symbols of the world. Oops, did I skip back on a couple of those? Look at the great symbols of the world. On the left, you've got the crescent and the star for Islam. Then you have the star of David on the right. You have kind of this gate for Shintoism where you enter into another realm. And then you got the little chubby guy, the Buddha, right? Who always looks happy. That's a very different symbol than the Christian symbol, isn't it? In fact, what's the defining Christian symbol? It's a cross. Have you ever just stopped and thought that the defining characteristic of the Christian God is suffering? That's the defining characteristic. That's why in John 17, when Jesus is given his last prayer, he says to God, he says, God, glorify me so I might glorify you. In other words, he's saying, God, prepare me and lift me up on the cross so I can make your character fully known to the world. I was actually just in Boston yesterday and a man asked me, he said, I've got a skeptical friend. He's saying, where was God in this tragedy that I went through? What would you say? And of course, that's a sensitive issue, right? I said, well, the first thing I would say is God hasn't abandoned you and God is right there suffering with you. I mean, you can't, you know, if you're physically going through pain, no one can pray and say, Jesus, you don't understand what it's like to be in physical pain. He's going, yeah, I was crucified. I mean, it it says in Hebrews 4.15, uniquely, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. I mean, if you're feeling the weight of temptation, it's like, God, you don't understand. I want to do this so deeply. And Jesus is like, yeah, I was in the desert 40 days. I got it can't say, man, my friends and my family have betrayed me and it hurts. My relationships are broken. And Jesus is like, yes, someone I poured my life into for three years betrayed me. We follow and worship a God who understands and who's been there and who empathizes with our suffering. But the reality is it doesn't stop there. In fact, It was Mother Teresa who said, in light of eternity, our suffering and the evil we experience in this world is like one night in a dingy hotel. (laughs) And she saw evil and she saw suffering up front. You see, if all God did is experience our suffering, we'd say, okay, this is great, we empathize, but are you going to do anything about it? Right? Ultimately, we want our suffering to end. That's why I love the story of Joseph 
where he's sold into slavery. Joseph is thrown in prison. He thinks he's never going to see his family again. His family comes back to see him. And the whole point of the story in 5020, when his brothers are broken and realize their sin, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And the reason, and ultimately God's response to evil, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Death does not win. It's not over. In fact, the amazing thing is I've been doing my dissertation. I'm defending it Thursday, and I've been studying the lives of the apostles who spent their time with Jesus and who saw him and ate with him and traveled him. It's been fascinating to follow their lives. And what's amazing is when Jesus was arrested, they thought he was, he was mistaken. They thought everything they had poured their lives into for the past three years or so was wrong. And the reality was, is when things were the darkest, it's that when God was working his greatest miracle. If you're going through suffering right now, I can't sit here and give you a simple answer why you're going through it. I don't know. I don't know why some people have been allowed to do evil in the world. I don't have the answer to that. I'm not God. The only way we would know is if God tells us. But I know that God is all-powerful. I know that God is good. I know that God has redeemed us and promises eternal life where all of us will experience relief from our suffering and our pain if we'll just trust him. Now, it might be that some of you are brought here and you're not you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. I've got a simple gift for you. Some of you know my, my father's story. He, the movie Undaunted, I think they premiered here a year or so ago, and he was growing up in a small family in Michigan, and his dad was a town drunk. My dad never knew his father sober until he was in his 20s, until my dad was in his 20s. Um, my dad was sexually abused for seven years by somebody who worked on the farm until my dad was strong enough to take him and slam him against the wall and say, if you touch me again, I will kill you. And he meant it. <laughs> my dad's older brother sued their family just out of spite. And I heard these stories growing up as part of our family, but I don't, for some reason I got it in a different way not too long ago. We were sitting around having one of the family nights at Michael's house, and my mom is telling funny stories of growing up in Boston. And my sister Heather goes, hey, Dad, tell a funny story, a good memory you have when you were a kid. Awkward silence my dad looks at us he says kids i don't have one and for some reason my heart was just broken and i felt it in a way i hadn't felt it before you know my dad told me he said son i thank god for my alcoholic father i said that just doesn't make any sense why he said because god has used that to break my heart and give me a passion to reach people who've been through similar circumstances. Friends, we worship a God of miracles, a God who redeems, and a God who restores. The question is, will you trust him? If you're at a point in your life and you're like, I don't know if I can trust this God. I don't know if I believe it. If you're not a Christian, I just want to give you a copy of the book my dad wrote, trying to disprove Christianity, ended up becoming a Christian. It's called More Than a Carpenter. If you're a skeptic, if you were dragged here this morning, I just want, you can read it in two hours. And see my dad's story as well as why he ended up coming to the conclusion that Christianity is true. Helped him update a couple years ago. It's free. Now, if you know someone who's a skeptic, you've got to pay for it or my wife and I will go broke. <laughs> but I'm going to sneak to the back. And if you just say, hey, you know what? That's me. I'm asking these questions. 
I would be honored to sign it and just give it to you as a gift. That would be a treat for me. Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the great things you're doing as a whole and in individual lives. God, as we look at this issue, maybe we don't always have the clarity we would like, but we understand that you're good. We understand that you're powerful. We understand that you have not just turned your back on the suffering and evil that we go through. I pray for those who are here this morning, if they are experiencing pain, if they're hurting and they just don't understand what's going on, God, give the, bring the people around them to comfort them. Just give them the knowledge to know amidst the hurt that you are good and they can trust you and that you have an ultimate plan for this. God, we thank you and praise in your name. Amen.